You are listening to the Ever Argue with a Woman podcast, and I am Heather Tesmer. Welcome back. And it's exciting to get started on our fourth podcast episode of the Ever Argue with a Woman podcast. We are starting as we do each podcast with a good business and a good personal. And mine for this month kind of go hand in hand. Good business is that we had a fantastic result at the end of a very difficult week-long jury trial. We've been working on this case for two years. And even though we now have a jury verdict, we're still being harassed by the other side. But we do see light at the end of the tunnel. And kind of hand in hand with that is good personal. I feel like I finally have some time to take care of myself. And I'm, I've had some medical issues that I've been dealing with. And I spent a few hours making appointments. And I feel very good about getting my health back on track. And I suggest everybody take a moment and... Make sure that you're taking care of yourself. Today, we're going to talk about premarital agreements, postmarital agreements. I wanted to talk about cohabitation agreements, agreements incident to marriage, separation agreements, and a little bit about agreements creating a right of survivorship. Probably the most common marital agreement is what we call the premarital agreement or a prenup. And before we really start talking about what one of those does, I want to talk about very simply what the marital estates are when it comes to property. So when you and your spouse decide to get married, everything that you have before marriage is your separate property. And same with your spouse. If you end up like me and my husband, we really had nothing when we started. Once we got married, everything that we started to acquire or earn was community property. And these are a big deal because if you go through a divorce, a judge gets to divide community property, but is not allowed to do anything with your separate property. If you have separate property, you need to keep it separate or you need to be able to trace what you do with it. So a premarital agreement will alter Texas law regarding community property and separate property. And so that's why a premarital agreement might be a good idea if you're contemplating getting married. Premarital agreements are usually used for parties that are maybe getting married for the second or third time, um, for high wage earners, or for um, parties that maybe have waited a little longer to get married and have acquired businesses or assets before marriage. So community property is anything that you earn or acquire while you're married. So this includes your salary, anything you're putting away into an IRA, any side hustles you might have. If you're selling Mary Kay or Tupperware, really any income that you have coming in. Separate property is anything you bring into the marriage that you had prior to marriage. It can include any gifts, and those gifts can also be from your spouse. It includes inheritance And sometimes it includes proceeds from a personal injury lawsuit. And that's just something you would have to look at in detail to see whether it's community or separate property. On separate property, sometimes anything that you earn off of your separate property 
can be community property. So that is a big reason to possibly go ahead and enter into a premarital agreement so that you know what the rules are going to be for money that's coming in from your separate property. For example, if you own a rental home down on Galveston Island, well, anything that you make off of that separate property would be community property. There are some specific rules on that and some property, the earnings off of it would remain separate property. I don't want to get too far into the weeds on that because it'll probably be a topic for another podcast, but just keep in mind that you really should get some legal advice prior to getting married. And I always think that that's a good idea for everybody. Okay, so let's talk about premarital agreements. So the primary purpose of most marital agreements is to give current or prospective spouses the ability to alter the marital property rights without a judge getting involved. There's also an important secondary purpose. They permit you and your spouse to more specifically define the actual rights and obligations towards each other. If you agree to the division of household responsibilities, the payment of living expenses, the sharing of child-rearing responsibilities, how you're going to bring your kids up in the church or not, you can even put in things about how you're going to resolve conflict. And then, of course, we can decide how the property will be divided if something does happen that will end the marriage. The range of issues that you can put in a premarital agreement are really up to your imagination. There are only a few things that you have to watch out for, and that's to make sure that they're not against public policy. Of course, that they're not against the law. And you really can't deal with child support and child issues. It has to be whatever's in the best interest of the children at the time. So sometimes if you look back at the history of an item, let's look at the history of premarital agreements. Texas courts historically determined that the definition and character of marital property was governed exclusively by the Texas Constitution. Attempts by the legislature to change or expand the definition of marital property without constitutional authority was deemed invalid, and spouses who tried to alter the characterization of their marital property by agreement were unsuccessful. The restriction became known as the mere agreement rule, and under this rule, spouses and couples about to marry could not change the character of their marital property by mere agreement because the Texas Constitution fixed the character of all property held in Texas. In 1948, the Texas Constitution was amended to allow spouses, for the first time, to contractually change the character of existing community property to separate property. Since then, further amendments to the Texas Constitution have broadened the scope of permissible marital agreements, and in 1980, spouses and couples about to marry were authorized to partition or exchange their existing and future property by agreement. In 1987, spouses were authorized to subject community property to a right of survivorship, and in 1999, spouses were authorized to convert separate property into community property by agreement. It's amazing to me because that wasn't that long ago. And if you look back at the history, especially when dealing with women, it's in very recent history that women were even allowed to get a loan on their own. 
Through these constitutional grants of authority, the legislature was given the power to prescribe the requirements for executing these agreements. These requirements were eventually enacted by the legislature and codified in the Family Code. Today, the Texas Constitution and the Family Code provide the exclusive ways that spouses and those contemplating marriage can change their marital property rights by agreement during marriage. Marital agreements that do not meet the strict requirements of the Texas Constitution and Family Code are not valid under Texas law. In 1987, the legislature adopted the Uniform Premarital Agreement Act, or UPAA, and codified it in the Family Code. The UPAA defines a premarital agreement as an agreement between prospective spouses made in contemplation of marriage and to be effective on marriage. Under this definition, the provisions of the UPAA do not apply to parties who are already married or to parties who cannot or will not marry such as first cousins. Premarital agreements are used to define the rights and obligations of couples who are about to marry. Generally, a premarital agreement can cover any matter as long as it does not, one, violate public policy or a statute imposing criminal penalties, and two, adversely affect a child's right to support, and three, defraud a creditor. There's a lot of different reasons why a couple might want to enter into a premarital agreement. Here's just a couple of examples. You may have money from a previous marriage and you want to make sure that your assets are preserved for the children of that earlier marriage. You may want to eliminate or limit any future alimony obligations. You may want to predetermine the party's rights and duties during the marriage, including child care, housework, career sacrifices, and managerial responsibilities related to family finances. You might want to detail what property belongs to each party when you enter the marriage and what property you will have if you leave the marriage. You also might want to make sure that you have some policies regarding who's managing which properties. You may want to ensure that a certain religious upbringing of the children will be put into place. You might want to keep your income separate, and you may want to make sure that premarital debts are paid in a certain way. You may want to clarify how your taxes will be filed and who will be responsible for any tax liabilities. So let's talk about the actual drafting of a premarital agreement. Generally, premarital agreements are subject to the same rules of construction and interpretation that apply to contracts. One important exception to this rule, however, is that all marital agreements will be construed narrowly in favor of the community estate. So if there's something going on, a judge will lean towards making it community rather than separate. As with any contract, the best practice is to require both parties to the agreement to have their own attorneys. Independent representation helps avoid the potential argument that one party had a disparate bargaining power over the other. If a party to the agreement is unwilling to obtain independent counsel, the agreement should contain a provision that independent representation was recommended but refused. So there are a few basic requirements. Let's go through them. Number one, of course, this needs to be in writing. That kind of goes without saying. Number two, 
A premarital agreement is enforceable without consideration, so including an exchange of consideration in the agreement is not necessary. The universal rule has been that mutual promises to marry, which are later performed, provide sufficient consideration for a premarital agreement. Number three, it's not necessary for a premarital agreement to specify a date when the marriage is to occur. Number four is a big one, and this is the one that'll bite you in the ass. Before a premarital agreement is signed, both parties must have the opportunity to receive a full disclosure of their property and financial obligations. Inadequate disclosure can be a defense to the enforcement of a premarital agreement. That means if one of you in the prospective marriage has money, they have got to show everything that they've got. But so does the one who may not be moneyed. So you also have to show what your assets are and what your debts are. Both of you have to show everything. I also always like to put a waiver that might help if something wasn't disclosed accidentally. But really the the big key is you've got to disclose everything. Of course, this agreement has to be signed by both parties before they marry, has to be sworn or acknowledged. If the agreement affects an ownership interest in real property, the agreement should be sworn or acknowledged, meaning notarized so that it can be recorded in the county records where the property is located. So let's go into a little bit more detail about what the scope of a premarital agreement can include. We can put in there what the rights and obligations regarding property. Premarital agreement can set out each person's rights and obligations regarding any property whenever it's acquired or wherever it's located. You can also specify the party's rights to buy, sell, use, transfer, exchange, abandon, lease, consume, expend, basically whatever they want to do with the property, you can set out in the agreement which one of you is the one who manages and controls that property. The agreement can provide for the disposition of the party's property upon separation or on divorce or on death or even some other event such as when a child marries or When a child reaches 18, a premarital agreement can provide for the disposition of the party's property upon the dissolution of a marriage, of course. And that's usually what most people think about when you talk about having a prenup. Something that a lot of people don't think about, though, is a prenup can say what's going to happen to your property upon death. So the premarital agreement can waive one party's right to occupy the family homestead after the other party dies. This might be a big deal if you are living in your spouse's separate property home and something happens to him or her, you would have a homestead right in in that house, even though it's separate property. The premarital agreement can resolve that issue, whether it's to say that you don't get that right or that you do get that right. It can modify or eliminate spousal support. It can provide for the creation of a will, trust, or other arrangement to carry out the provisions of the agreement. It can establish the ownership of rights in any disposition of benefits from a life insurance policy. The premarital agreement can talk about what state or country's law will govern the construction of the agreement. It can also talk about um, if you get into a disagreement that you have to go to mediation before you file anything with the court. A premarital agreement can include a forfeiture provision that penalizes a party for taking or not taking specific actions. And really, you can put anything else in there that you want to put in. 
there's been some bizarre contracts that I've seen, and they even provide for how many times in a month the parties will have sex. (laughs) So you can really be as creative as you want to be with these. There are a few things, though, that you cannot do with a premarital agreement. You cannot do anything that violates public policy. An example would be a provision encouraging or promoting divorce. Another provision that would violate public policy might be a provision that restricts the religious upbringing of a child. You just have to be careful about some of those stickier situations. Your premarital agreement also cannot adversely affect child support, and you cannot enter into a premarital agreement with the intent to defraud creditors. So you may not be able to mess with survivor benefits under an ERISA plan. A premarital agreement cannot waive a prospective spouse's survivor benefits in an Employee Retirement Income Security Act retirement plan. Under ERISA, survivor benefits can be waived only by a spouse. Because a prospective spouse is not a spouse, survivor benefits cannot be waived before marriage. So if that is your intent, you need to ratify your premarital agreement with a postmarital agreement or postnuptial agreement dealing specifically with that. After you draft your premarital agreement, it does not actually go into effect until you're actually married. So obviously, your premarital agreement begins on the date of your marriage, and it ends on the date provided by the agreement. If the agreement does not specify its duration, it is presumed the parties intended the agreement to continue for a reasonable time. So a lot of premarital agreements have like step downs. So if you are married for at least five years, then you, as the non-moneyed spouse, would receive so much. If you'd last 10 years, you would receive so much. Also, sometimes there's at-fault provisions. So if one of you has an affair or is the one who is at fault for creating the demise of the marriage, well, then there are penalties within the premarital agreement, and it affects the property division at the time of divorce. I want to talk about contesting or enforcing a premarital agreement, but I think we're going to go through some of these other agreements first real quick, and then we'll talk about contesting all of them at the end. So the next agreement that I want to talk about is a postmarital agreement. And generally, there are two types. There's a partition exchange agreement and a conversion agreement. And both agreements have a similar primary purpose, and that is to change the characterization of marital property during marriage. A partition exchange agreement allows spouses to convert community property into separate property. Conversion agreements allow spouses to convert separate property into community property. The agreements can also serve a secondary purpose, much like premarital agreements, postmarital agreements can more specifically define the spouse's rights and duties. So let's start with a partition exchange agreement. This is where you take community property and change it into separate property. Spouses can at any time partition or exchange between themselves all or part of the community property that they currently have or will acquire. 
property or a property interest that is transferred to a spouse by a partition exchange agreement becomes the spouse's separate property. The purpose of doing this is simply to allow spouses to convert their interests in community property into separate property. There are a number of practical reasons why spouses may choose to enter into one of these agreements. One reason is to create a community-free marriage. A partition exchange agreement can be drafted so that all existing and future community property will be separate property, thus making the marriage free of all community property. Another practical reason for entering into a partition exchange agreement is to preserve the separate character of income-producing separate property. Normally, any income or property derived from a spouse's separate property during the marriage is community property. To avoid this result, a partition exchange agreement can be drafted so all future income derived from separate property remains separate property. And I've seen where this happens when one of the parties maybe inherits their grandmother's house and they're going to rent it out. You would want to do this so that the income coming off of that separate property would remain separate property. Otherwise, the rents that you get from that house would be community property. When we're going to write up a partition exchange agreement, it's similar to a premarital agreement. Again, the agreement will be constructed and interpreted according to contract law and should be entered into with each spouse being independently represented. Again, it has to be in writing. We have to identify the property that we're talking about. We have to specify the intent to partition or exchange. So it should clearly specify the party's intent, either by including the term partition or exchange or by containing clear language indicating the party's intent. It has to have a present effect. So the agreement must bring about the partition or exchange when the agreement is signed. The agreement cannot require future action to accomplish the partition or the exchange. Again, we don't need any consideration. We do need the opportunity to receive full disclosure of the other party's property and financial obligations. Again, I still think that's probably the biggest element that you have to worry about. Of course, this has to be signed. It needs to be notarized, but we do not need any court approval for these agreements. So what is the scope of a partition exchange agreement? It can actually change the characterization of the community property to separate property. Now, a partition exchange agreement has no effect on the spouse's pre-existing separate property, even if that property is identified in the agreement. To convert separate property into community property, the parties must execute a conversion agreement. A conversion agreement has more stringent requirements than a partition exchange agreement, and we'll talk about that next. The spouses can partition or exchange their present or future interests in real or personal community property, including income and earnings. Spouses can designate the future earnings or income generated by partitioned or exchanged property will become the separate property of the owning spouse. And again, you can define what your marital relationship is going to look like, what rights and duties you each are going to share. You can put in there that if you have any kind of disagreement that you've got to go to mediation. And again, we have the same prohibited contractual provisions of not violating public policy, can't affect child support, and you cannot defraud creditors. Okay, well, thanks everybody for listening to the Ever Argue With a Woman podcast. And next time, we're going to continue to discuss marital agreements. And 
Today, we talked about premarital and postmarital agreements, but there are a lot of other ways that you can protect yourself and your property. Um, some of those might be by doing a conversion agreement. You can always have an informal marriage or a cohabitation agreement. You can enter into agreements in consideration of marriage. You can do a separation agreement, a right of survivorship agreement. There are all kinds of things that you can do, and we're going to talk more in depth about them next time. Please remember that you can always ask questions, and we might be able to answer them on our next podcast. So if you think of anything that you really want to hear about, please let us know by going to our website and asking any question that you might want to have answered. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. Bye-bye. You are listening to the Ever Argue With a Woman podcast, and I am Heather Tesmer. Ever Argue With a Woman?